Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which Jeremy Hardy sets sail on the airwaves like a tall ship, only short. This week, how to be happy. Hello and welcome to the sixth and final programme of the series in which we are joined, as usual, by Gordon Kennedy and also by a newcomer to the series, Caroline Leddy. Now, Caroline, you've just joined the programme, which is a bit pointless because we're finishing tonight, but thanks for coming. That's all right. Have you had your tea? Yeah, I'm fine. Are you sure you don't want any money or anything? No, honestly, I had to come into town anyway. OK, well, <laughs> perhaps you'd like to start by reading out a letter from a listener. Certainly. This one comes from Mrs Oswald of Moseley, near Birmingham. She writes, Dear Mr Hardy, I have a small east-facing garden with a soft clay soil. <laughs> the centrepiece is presently a small cherry tree, but it fails to bloom, and I've been thinking of replacing it with a gallows so that I can, <laughs> can hold public hangings in the summer when the garden gets the sunlight in the early morning. How deep should I bed the gibbet in so that it's not pulled over by the weight of the condemned? <laughs> Well, Mrs. Oswald, strictly speaking, although a private person can carry out a citizen's arrest, the killing of prisoners can only be done by police officers during arrest or back at the station. <laughs> now, Gordon. We also have a letter from Nicky, a student at the University of Central Englandshire, who writes to you, Dear Sir or Madam, I am writing a dissertation on the subject of whether radio comedy influences the way that people drive and make the tea. I thought that since all listeners to your programme fall into one of those social groups, you might have some insight into the patterns of motoring and meal preparation amongst those waiting for the archers. Well, Nicky, thank you for your letter. I'm afraid I don't have up-to-date figures on that, but I am sending you a signed copy of my self-help book for students called Study Something Important. <laughs> Now on with the lecture. As anyone who walked into the kitchen or started their engine two or more minutes ago will know, tonight's subject is how to be happy. In a previous programme, we looked at how to bear up under the strain, and tonight we shall endeavour to reach a wholly new level of consciousness where we're actually in quite a good mood. I have to admit straight away that cheery is not a word which has often been applied to my disposition. I tried to read Sylvia Plath, and I just thought, yes, yeah, so... <laughs> But I shall do my best to shed some light on how we might all face the day with gladder hearts. By my calculations, only about one in ten people throw open the curtains in the morning and feel glad to be alive. The rest of us wake up feeling as if we've been savagely beaten. <laughs> Franz Kafka is perhaps overly pessimistic because it's also quite rare to wake up and find you've been turned into a giant insect, unless you're supposed to be getting married that day and your mates thought it would be a good laugh. <laughs> Generally, the worse you feel in the morning, the better the time you had the night before. If you wake up feeling marvellous, it means no one rang and there was nothing on telly apart from something that doesn't conclude till next week, so you lost the will to live and got an early night. <laughs> or it may be that you had a great night but took precautions to prevent the hangover. You will really notice the difference if you remember to drink two pints of water before going to sleep because you'll wake up to find you've wet the bed. <laughs> But it is possible to wake up feeling relieved in a different sense, that is, to wake up and find something was only a bad dream. You might, if you are a heartless and miserly businessman, wake up on Christmas Day glad that you haven't missed it and you still have a chance to send a turkey to Bob Cratchit's house. But it's more likely that you'll wake up glad that you got all the redundancy notices out in time for Christmas so you can relax and enjoy your break. <laughs> 
the conscience is very limited when it comes to the wealthy and powerful. Much as we would like to imagine that Michael Heseltine wakes up in the night screaming, the fact is that he probably sleeps more soundly than any of us. He knows that when he wakes, he will be pampered and preened and listened to without question, because he's in the Today studio at 8 o'clock. <laughs> to give him credit, he is extraordinarily coherent at that time of the morning. Most of us would say, oh, I don't know, I've just got up, haven't I? <laughs> And to be honest, the Today programme is about all I can stand to listen to at that time of day. I've certainly never understood the appeal of the big breakfast. Anyone who's that cheerful in the morning should be made to read transcripts of the Nuremberg trials until they calm down. <laughs> and the programme gives us no reason to be happy. It simply demands that we are. It's the same with radio DJs. Who does the breakfast show is a vitally important issue for the nation. Perhaps there's a fear that unless we are all summoned to the paddy fields by someone with his own unique brand of quirky humour, we'll all phone in sick and the country will just grind to a halt. <laughs> Everyone would say, no, I'm going to put Radio 4 on and hear what that Methodist lay preacher has to say about pausing to reflect. <laughs> Although it's not good to linger too long in front of your own reflection because it can be quite traumatic at that time of the morning. The only comfort is that you discover you haven't gone blind in one eye, it's just your top lip is folded across your face. <laughs> but even if we do listen to the Methodist, it only takes a moment and then we crack on. We've had our thought for the day and that was somebody else's. The Today programme isn't a wacky breakfast show, but it does have its own personality, steady and structured, pleasant and jocund, and the people chosen to do thought for the day have to fit in with that. I've been able to obtain a tape of auditions held to find people whose presentational style will be bearable at a quarter to eight in the morning. <laughs> OK, darling, uh, could you just give us your name and start your piece whenever you're comfortable? Elaine Winterbourne, vicar's wife. <laughs> Good morning. Last week, I went into the corner shop where the proprietor, Mr. Mohammed, has always been so kind and helpful and works late into the evening serving a small community with many essential grocery items. And I thought to myself, what a pity he'll go to hell for opening on Sunday. <laughs> if only he and his fellow blasphemers would allow the Lord Jesus into their lives, they might be saved. But as things stand, they're off to the inferno with the Sikhs and the Jews. <laughs> I have many friends in the church who are sodomites or liberals. <laughs> in fact, I send them hate mail, although I don't sign it. Thank you, I... my darling. That's great. And could we have the happy rabbi now? Yes, here. Okay, rabbi, just give us your full name and then start your piece when you're ready. Rabbi Leonard Black. Hello. As the festival of Yom Kippur approaches, I am reminded of the story of the family on their way to the funeral. They're all waiting to leave the house when one of the dead man's sons notices his brother hasn't come downstairs. So he runs upstairs and finds his brother stooping the au pair. He says, Morris, what do you think you're doing? Mo says, I'm so upset, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I just flew down from Leeds, and boy, my arms are tired. Yes, so thank I'm you, Lenny, to... dear. <laughs> thank you. Um... Could we have Mary Walsh now, please? Good morning. We hear so often these days some dig against the priesthood, some remark about the failings of bishops. I take those remarks personally because I'm the daughter of a Catholic priest. <laughs> if you're listening, Dad, Mum's getting a bit short and says, could you get a check in the post? Yes. Thank you, my sweetness. Um, who's next, please? Reverend Dr. Grandmaster Flash Winnie, moderator of the Black Perceptory of the Red Hand of the Loyal Orange Order. In your own time, Reverend. 
A month later, I picked up 80 quid. Now, I make that a monthly return of 800%, or to put it another way, a per capita rate of 9,600%. Money box, kiss my ass. <laughs> now, Caroline and Gordon, have you got your finances in order? Yeah, I just went into the post office, looked at what was on offer, and now I'm completely provided for my old age. What did you get? A stair lift. Honestly, it's brilliant. <laughs> It's changed my life. But you're only 35. I know, but I've stopped eating meat, so I'm not steady on my feet as I used to be. <laughs> so that's all you've got, a stair lift? No, I've got a bleeper as well. What's that for? Well, when there's a power cut, I light the bottom of the stairs and set my alarm off, and a neighbour comes and gives me a piggyback. <laughs> right, now, Gordon, you're Scottish. Yeah, oh, what? What, you're going to ask me if we're all thrifty and penny-wise widows who collect hazelnuts in our teeth to pile them up to spell out the word miser? No, I was going to ask if the Protestant work ethic is strong in Scotland. Well, it is possible for Catholics to get jobs. Um, but the Lodge does pull more strings, if you know what I mean. Indeed. Thrift is, of course, meant to be a virtue. We are supposed to revile people who blow prize money or redundancy pay in a spending spree, but you can't help admiring them, because it was great while it lasted. Money can't bring you happiness unless you spend a huge amount of it all in one go. And the money that's the most fun is the money you didn't have to work for. Ask the chairman of any privatised utility. <laughs> and look at the contestants on a game show. They win tat, they win nothing, but it's great because it's a prezi. It's a crappy car. Brucey might say it's beautiful, but he'd no more be seen in it than he'd be seen without that lavatory seat cover on his head. <laughs> game show prizes are nothing. An electric butter knife. A flossing machine. A crystal fridge magnet. Ladies and gents, matching beige things. But they're prizes and they're tangible. You don't want them and they're worth about £140 total. But it's more exciting than winning... 12 monthly payments of £11.67! <laughs> it's even dismal when they win a lump sum of £140 in cash because you know they'll use it to pay some bills. If it was 30 quid, they'd blow it in the services on the way home. And at least that way they'd end up with some sweets, a Glen Campbell CD and a video for the kids. <laughs> Winning on TV game shows is never going to change your life, but gambling can. Lives are destroyed by compulsive gambling, but there's also that tiny possibility of serious money. People who are poor and spend 10 or 20 pounds a week on lottery tickets are deemed to be fair game by the organisers. I hope you're listening to this, Gordon. And, <laughs> and as dupes by everyone else. But what's interesting is how many people who consider themselves to have a reasonably comfortable life buy lottery tickets. How many bored housewives, sick of smiling loyally by the side of their successful husband, are down the newsagent the second he leaves for the office, hoping to win the jackpot and show the smug stupid bastard. No wonder the Tories introduced it. Their wives must have been on at them constantly. But of course you're not going to win the lottery. People do, but you won't. Not knowing your luck. And of the people who have won £17 million, none of them have been asked whether they bought more or less than 17 million lottery tickets in that particular week. <laughs> so you have to look at other ways of attempting happiness. You can't invest all your hopes in what might be. If the present really is too awful to bear, it's best to lock it away and remember to take it out when the auntie who gave it you comes to visit. <laughs> but should we just blot reality out? 
Someone once said, ignorance is bliss. I don't know who it was, but strangely, it doesn't seem to matter anymore. <laughs> but is it really true we're better off not knowing things? I'm not going to answer that, because it'll only upset you. <laughs> Children in particular get lied to in a spirit of sheltering. We assume it's nice for them to believe there's a Santa Claus. What are we thinking of? We pay for all this crap, schlep it home from batteries not included world, and then get no thanks because we've given the credit to some old bearded weirdo who works in a department store two weeks a year. <laughs> As far as children are concerned, we think that fantasy gives them more pleasure than the truth. If we could, we'd protect them from all the horrible things they have to learn about. We wish they could always be innocent. Of course, they could still go to prison, but at least there's a chance they'd be released in 15 or 20 years. <laughs> but we also try to make children appreciate things by threatening them with what life could be like. That's why it's a bad idea to send children to boarding school. You've got no ammunition left, because you've done the cruelest thing you could ever do. <laughs> Traditionally, British children have always been taught at the earliest possible age that life is dreadful for people who aren't British. Foreigners can dance and do lovely weaving, but they've all got leprosy. <laughs> Which is caused by British children not holding enough bring-and-buy sales. <laughs> and what is this supposed to make children feel? That they should be happy with their lot? That they're doing their bit by taking part? Why don't we suggest that if they want to help people in the Southern Hemisphere, they should ask their parents for any old hammers, take them to their nearest British aerospace factory and smash up Hawk jets due for export to Indonesia. <laughs> Teach them that helping others can be fun. But of course, you shouldn't indoctrinate children, unless it's to tell them that the police are nice because you can stroke their horses, soldiers are brave men who protect the Queen and play the trumpet, God is in his heaven, the Falklands are ours, and the answer to the world's problems is going through your parents' cupboards looking for used odour eaters to be recycled and used in water filtration. <laughs> the trouble is, we want children to be happy, but at the same time, we're trying to explain things to them. They have to learn, for example, that various people are not going to be around forever. That's why when a presenter is going to leave a children's programme, young viewers are warned every week for several months, so that the shock is not too great for them. <laughs> then they are subjected to a whole programme dedicated to that person's illustrious career on the show, as if kids give a toss who the presenters are. They have to sit through endless footage showing all the years of the one who's leaving being allowed to have a go at every aspect of rigorous military training apart from the all-important killing part. <laughs> children become aware very early on that they are not getting the whole truth. Within days of being born, they hear friends of their parents say, Oh, he's beautiful. <laughs> Although detectable in the voice, he's good God. <laughs> that reminds me, I must take the E.T. video back to the video store. <laughs> and because parents are trying to control children, protect them and enlighten them all at the same time, we end up confusing them with a lot of mixed messages. They are supposed to be suspicious of strangers, but not scream, get away from me, you filthy old man, when the clown hands them a balloon at a party. <laughs> they are supposed to tell the truth, but gloss over the fact that mum and dad sometimes roll fat, hairy cigarettes even though they don't smoke. <laughs> They're not supposed to swear, but we giggle uncontrollably when they do. We want them to play Mary or Joseph in the school nativity, but we also let slip that we're not entirely convinced by the plot. <laughs> Teachers are increasingly aware that religious education may not be fully backed up at home, so they're doing their best to turn the nativity into a kind of half-modernised, accessible story of everyday folk in bizarre circumstances. Mary, you look surprised. Has something happened? Yes, Joseph, an angel has told me I'm going to have a baby. He will be the son of God. 
That is wonderful news! It is it us? Why have we been chosen? By our virgins, you never had your sperm frozen. I must pay my tax. Come on, get on the donkey! Oh, Joseph, we have tried 17 inns and each innkeeper had to do a song. I cannot travel any further. Hello. Please help us. My wife has travelled many miles. I would help, but there's a Red Dwarf convention in town. No, wait. I have an idea. Sarah Norbadge, Bethlehem is full. Have it in the straw Who needs hospital That is very kind of you I heard about these manure buffs at my MCT group After the baby was born the rest of the class were used up by making them shepherds but only the three with the best dressing gowns got speaking parts <laughs> Three wise men also came to the stable to see the baby Jesus. On the way, they stopped to tell Herod a new king was born, which wasn't such a wise move. <laughs> the shepherds and the wise men brought gifts to the baby. Look, Mary, visitors! Please, Joseph, not now. I need some time with my baby. This place is a pigsty, and if your mother comes to stay, I'm going to blow my bloody stack. <laughs> and so... Jesus grew up from a plastic doll into the King of the Jews. <laughs> we hope you have enjoyed our Christmas story, which may or may not be true. We really should, as a society, decide whether religion in schools is likely to bring happiness to children or whether it's done to keep parents happy. Most schools are now very good at embracing the many faiths that exist in our multicultural society, although very few celebrate a special day for the children whose parents think it's all cobblers. <laughs> Maybe it's the fault of atheists for not having our own festival where we each give each other fossils and eat sweets that represent the body of evidence for evolution. <laughs> Actually, pagans don't get much of a look in at school either because it would give the game away about the Christians nicking all their festivals. <laughs> the justification most frequently given for forcing children to take religion on board when they've got a million and one other things to worry about is that it helps give them a sense of right and wrong. But it's no help at all. The Lord didn't say, don't snatch. Or if you can't be sensible with that golden calf, I'm going to put it away until you're older. <laughs> Rather than wading through pages and pages of the Bible or the Quran to find a bit where it says, Pull not thy sister's hair, for hair pulling is mine, saith the Lord, you can <laughs> simply say, Don't do that, she doesn't like it. Which expresses perfectly the concept that humanity shares common needs and feelings, and just as we experience distress, so do others. So the distress of others is equal or at least comparable to our own. I'm a boring you. And a <laughs> violation of the rights of one person is a violation of the rights of us all. Which is sort of what religious people are saying. Except that they think, that's ridiculous. Nobody will ever believe me if I say that. I'll have to back it up with something more plausible, like a messiah who can surf unaided. <laughs> But of course, religion exists, not so much to give us a code for living, but to help us forget the things that make us miserable. It's one of those palliatives that offer temporary relief, but leave us feeling worse than we did before. 
We try religion, drugs, drink, therapy and tiramisu and end up disillusioned, burnt out, hungover, self-obsessed and fat. But at this point, in the closing moments of a lecture, I feel I should ask whether we in this country can ever really be happy. Being miserable is so much a part of British culture that we'd be lost without it. In this, we are completely different from the Americans. In America, the pursuit of happiness is a constitutional right. In this country, anyone considering it would have to put in a planning application. <laughs> our idea of leaving our worries on the doorstep is closing down mental hospitals. <laughs> so when we try to borrow... So when we try to borrow from American culture, we get it terribly wrong. When a British entertainer attempts to use the phrase, give it up, you really think he should listen to his own advice. <laughs> An American can run on stage and say, do you feel all right? It would sound preposterous if I did that. It would come out wrong. It would be, do you feel all right? <laughs> You're looking a bit peaky. Are you working too hard? Hatefully cretinous programmes like The Big Breakfast, Knowles House Party and Last Chance Lottery all try to capture the exuberance of Americana and an embarrassed British audience try to get into the spirit. But you know they're thinking, well, at least we're all in it together. <laughs> we in Britain think any banal activity is tremendous if everyone gets to take part, although we don't extend the same approach to tertiary education or housing. <laughs> We love amateur nights, talent shows, karaoke, Elvis impersonators. We can be entertained for hours watching someone who's not very good at what they're doing. That's why we call out telecom engineers. <laughs> People will practice juggling in the park or do a feeble street act in a shopping precinct so that the rest of us can watch them dropping things. <laughs> And yet, surely, a circus skill should be something we marvel at. It should have mystery and magic, the Inquisition condemning it as devilry. We shouldn't see jugglers going on record breakers and talking about how they get in shape for their big juggle. But they do, and they say the great thing about juggling is anyone can do it. But that's the terrible thing about it. Anyone can defecate, but that doesn't make it cabaret. <laughs> Except in Holland. And what is fun about a fun run? Hundreds of people all doing exactly the same thing at the same time. If you want to pile onto the streets and stop traffic, it should be to support the Liverpool dockers, not to be seen on Tower Bridge dressed as Wiley Coyote. <laughs> well, having expressed my hatred of audience participation, I think it's time for my question and answer session. <laughs> Ask Mr. Hardy. So the lovely Martha is there with a the microphone, if everybody... Got, there's a man there. Right. Uh, would it be appropriate, you've brought it up already, that we have a, a whip round for the Liverpool Dockers after the show? I think it would be extremely appropriate, but I don't think the BBC would be very pleased. <laughs> have, you got, have you got a bucket? Uh, got a large pocket. <laughs> well, if we give the money to you, will you promise to give it to the Liverpool Dockers? <laughs> But if anyone wants to do that, if anyone wants to give me loads of money, I will pass it on to Liverpool, because I know them all, personally. <laughs> Honest. You don't trust me now, do you? You think I'll piss it up the wall on administration, don't you? <laughs> of course, I'll have to get a taxi to Liverpool and have to have lunch on the way and all. <laughs> Somebody, oh, the gentleman here. What did your parents do to try and make you happy, and why didn't it work? <laughs> Give you an idea about my parents. They, when, when I was about 14, they said, what would you like for Christmas? I said, I'll get me a record. And my father bought me the original BBC recording of Under Milk Wood <laughs> with Richard Burton. 
and it's bloody marvellous, but you can't really sort of invite girls round. <laughs> it was a slow black, slow black night. <laughs> you got any slide? <laughs> Anyone else? Somebody, woman in the front row, hand up, yeah. I wondered what you told your own children about Santa. What I've told my own child about Santa? Um, well, I've told her that she exists. He, she, well, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. Being a progressive family, I said. You know, Santa is an Afro-Caribbean woman <laughs> who um, lives with her partner, St. Bernadette. <laughs> and uh, they run a vegan creche. <laughs> A vegan crash would be a terrifying thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just pasty, pallid white children going... <laughs> Can you pass me the Duplo? <laughs> One last question before we all have to go and get some sleep. What would make you happy? Oh, I don't know. Questions, questions, questions. <laughs> God! I'm afraid I have got to stop there. I'm sorry to say that the BBC bosses have taken me off the air on the pathetic pretext that the series is over. <laughs> so, good night, Britain. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred barroom hellraiser Gordon Kennedy and bathroom safety raiser Caroline Leddy. The producer was David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the BBC, the corporation that put the cost in costume drama.